this is not about how hard you work or how talented you are or anything. It's part of when you were born and some of the biggest circumstances that happen in history that you don't have control of. Yeah. And that will always happen in your life. And then you have to figure out, well, what's the new dynamic? How do I work with that? What what do I want to do? So what did that um, what did that do to your world? Like, what did that do to your thinking? Because that would have been pretty hard to stomach, right? To have those barriers put up, they're almost unscalable kind of walls around you. Yeah. To stop you from getting into that industry. So how did, what was your thought process around that? Hey, it's Az, and welcome to Paper Fox Radio. Paper Fox Radio is a personal and creative exercise. It's a collection of stories of those people who are listening to the thing that's calling them. It's for the creative, the intentional, the curious, and those who are interested in moving humanity forward. I hope you enjoy the show. In... The spirit of Paper Fox Radio, I'd like to start with some transparency for a good story. And this is the third time we've sat down to record this episode, not through my obsessive perfectionist nature, but more to get the content right. We felt the first time we recorded it, I wasn't so good. The second time we recorded it, the energy wasn't great. So third time is a charm. Who's our guest? Samantha Chorus, my beautiful partner. Not only because she's friendly fire for me, but she's extremely talented and she has a really crazy good backstory about what she's done with her life and career and where that's taken to her. She's built rocket engines. She's done experiments with NASA. She appeared on Hey Hey It's Saturday. She's built and designed solar power stations what else i think you built a school in columbia and we've done heaps of great stuff we had a startup together and now we've got a son welcome hey it's great to be here i'm really humbled to be the first guest at paper fox radio and super excited to have some story time how's your day been pretty good yeah into my second try so I'd say excellent and a great walk this morning. So yeah, pretty good. Nice. So let's kick it off. You grew up in Sydney on the northern beaches. Tell us a bit about what it was like back then in the 80s and 90s growing up on the northern beaches. And 70s. <laughs> and briefly. It's very different to today's Sydney. Way more relaxed, but for me, it was a memory very much of an outdoors childhood one where we had heaps of space and time to play and there's lots of kids in the community and I just remember biking around everywhere and going on adventures. Mostly we were just looking to play and have fun and I had fortunately parents who really wanted to raise us independently so lots of freedom to be out there and have those adventures and I think now as an adult I can see how important that was for helping build the person I am today and it was also like a really felt really relaxed like a relaxed childhood no pressure 
really to be or do a certain thing. Just fun is really what comes to mind. Fun and community and family. We had a lot of that in our lives. And also very creative. I think there was such a focus on just coming up with our own fun and games that we spent a lot of time making plays and stories and books and just acting out things and inviting people to watch our performances like they'd want to pay for that. Did they? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) But we tried. (laughs) And, yeah, if it was a rainy day and we couldn't be outside, we were making puzzles and games indoors and painting. And, yeah, it was just it was a lot of fun and a lot of freedom and a lot of friends. So what sort of values do you think your parents instilled on you as a child? The first one is honesty. Very, very strong on what it means to be honest, what what your signature means when you sign something, what it means to say that you're going to do something. Essentially to tell the truth even if it's hard. That's the mm. number one thing that I remember. Second one would be working hard. That really came across um, with my dad worked long hours, he traveled a lot, and my mom had three of us to look after. And I remember really understanding how important it was, like we didn't have a lot of money when I was little, how much that meant that they worked so hard so that we could have an education. Which probably brings me to the third one I remember. You can use your own learning and your own like will and passion to change your position in life that you can use education if you want to change where you are in life okay and so there was a big focus on having that capacity to learn if you chose never under pressure Mm. so I think that was very important that it was self-driven and self-motivating that intrinsic motivation so you didn't have your parents weren't pushing you to study hard or they weren't forcing you in any particular direction or anything definitely not yeah I feel it was I don't even remember if we talked about going to university wow it was so we were definitely motivated to do our own work and if you weren't then that was your choice wow what was it that you wanted to be when you grew up I always wanted to be an astronaut ever since I can remember and where did, th- where did that come from? From somewhere inside my, my being, my soul, since I remember my first memory, hmm. that's all I ever wanted to be. And I'm sure it helped that in those days in Sydney, you could look out at the stars in the sky. There was a big sky you could watch from our roof and I would sneak out and lay on the roof and look up at the stars. I just remember knowing and feeling that that was where I was meant to be. It wasn't a question. The only question that I remember asking myself is, what path will you take to get there? And whatever that was, it didn't bother me. I knew that it would be my path. I felt certain what the end would be and that Mm. I would be in space. Wow. So what was that first step out the door like for you? Like which, which direction? So you want to be an astronaut, I'm interested to know, what did you do first? Well, it was, that's a tough question because I, I think I 
started first on all the conventional paths, asking careers advisors and people, but I didn't really know any scientists or engineers or anyone at all remotely connected to that space industry. No astronomers, nothing. So anyone that I asked, it was essentially met with a little bit of a laugh, like that's unreal, Mm. (laughs) or or not even knowing what it was. So for me, it started personally to try to figure it out on my own, via my own research really. Back in the day, you could go to the library and pull out all this information from every single astronaut that had ever flown. And what I did was compile essentially a biography of every single person that had been in space and how they achieved that goal. Wow. Was there a a thread that linked them all? Like was there one quality or one qualification or one path or... Well, one quality, they did all seem to be hard workers. <laughs> when you looked okay. at their CVs, they had done an awful lot of things. But what came across to me is that they seemed to be adventurous, mm. and that lined up with me. A lot of them were fighter pilots. They had scuba diving license licenses, and they understood science. They were PhDs or researchers of some type often. So between being into science, into flying, and into the ocean I thought perfect that's actually exactly what I love like I love those three things and still today that's who I am Mm. and when I saw those qualities show up I thought great like these are aligned with the kinds of things I love to do and who I am essentially the first step for all of those was the defense force most of them went through defense and went on to be fighter pilots first and so I thought this seems like the path that I needed to take on my first step as well. Rock and roll. What did you study when you were at school? Sorry, at school or at university? Uh, University. So amazingly, I did law first year out of into university combined with computer science, which was my best effort at studying something in English and something in maths. Right. Two things that I loved. Um, Because I had no idea how I could really get onto this goal but I knew that a lot of the defense work went through UNSW. So I thought I'll go to that university yep. and I will study things related to things I love, English and maths. That's what I thought. <laughs> that was totally wrong. It was a terrible choice. Uh, what so happened? I dropped out of that in the first year. <laughs> and by that time I'd figured out there was a degree called aerospace engineering, which was having scoured the whole university, the only thing I could find with the word space in the title. And I thought, well, that's it then. Off we go, aerospace engineering it is. You ended up heading towards Purdue University. How did that happen? Yes, yes, I did. So Purdue University is in the US. It's one of the big five aerospace universities. It's where Neil Armstrong went to university So the first and last men to walk on the moon went there. And I'd realized that and thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to go somewhere that has so many astronauts Mm. and so much incredible space stuff happening? I wonder how it would be possible for me to go and study there, especially when it costs something like $100,000 a year. So how old are you you at this point? Um, I'm... I think I'm about, maybe I'm 19 when I'm dreaming it up, 19 or 20. It Mm. took a little while to get there. So there's at least a year, year and a half of planning. The University of New South Wales did an exchange program at the time, but they didn't have one with Purdue. I thought, look, I either go to a different uni 
where it'll be great still, it's still a year away, or I can find a way to go to Peru, which sounds incredible. Mm. And so that's what I did. I essentially had to set up the relationship between Purdue and UNSW firstly, so that there was the actual capacity for me, just on paper at least, to do a formal exchange with that university for one year in the space engineering department. And then I was lucky enough to get a scholarship. I got accepted to Purdue. And I then had to do a huge amount of study before I went because we don't really learn any level of space subjects that were the same here at UNSW. So I was doing third and fourth year subjects before I went to Purdue to pick up first year class right. over there. And that was fine. Like, I loved it. I was doing third year and first year and second year all together at the same time wow. and working three jobs to save the money to go. It was awesome. So I did that for the whole year before I went. And then when I got on that plane, I felt just so excited and happy and lucky that I was getting to do this. And I, I kind of felt a little bit prepared because I knew a little bit about space for the first time. It felt like I actually knew a little bit about space, which was fantastic. And so you end up at Purdue. Yes. And then what happens? Well, it was a wonderful year. It was a year that changed my life's direction forever. And I can't imagine how different my life would actually have played out if I hadn't made that effort mm. to go to Purdue. It would be a different path. So one of the first things that happened was very exciting. I was walking past the Gus Grissom building, which is the aerospace building, of course. And there's this small, completely indescript A4 piece of paper stuck to the glass door of the classic engineering building, sticky taped up. And it says something to the effect of, try out for NASA, basically. <laughs> like, who wants to fly with NASA? Come to the meeting and hear all about it. And I just thought, what is this place? Like, I've landed here from Sydney, Australia, just like a few weeks ago. And here I am in the thick of it already amazed by the people I'm meeting and I walk into this building and there's a sign that says you can go to NASA next. I'm like, this is unreal. Your trip to Purdue wasn't necessarily to fly with NASA. It was just to be in that environment. Exactly. It's almost to be walking the halls and to be studying where these amazing people have been. Exactly, yeah. Like just exactly that, walking the halls. The people there are incredible. They were working on all sorts of incredible NASA missions that were currently happening. I think the Cassini mission is the one I most remember because my professor was actually working on that at the time and he would give us actual Cassini mission problems wow. to solve, which took me a while to realize they were actually real life missions because so we don't get that chance here. What sort of what sort of problems would they be that you'd solve? Mostly we were learning around the trajectories. Right. So how how would we fly a spacecraft to Saturn, for example? Like what trajectory would we use? How would we land it? What, like, what do we do in terms of the timing and the orbital mechanics? It was an orbital mechanics class. So yeah, just to walk the halls was why I went there and because it seemed like you'd be in the thick of yeah. this, incredible, this incredible space community that I had never had the chance to interact with. And also because I knew that we just did not have at that time the capacity to teach these subjects at this level in Australia just didn't exist back then. Mm. And so if I could do a really great mechanical engineering degree in Sydney, which we are excellent at that, 
and top it off with my space engineering subjects that I learned from one of the best universities in the world for the space part of it, then I would be in really good shape, plus add my maths degree onto it. And I felt like, okay, I've got some skills here that can help me solve problems and go places and Mm. have adventures in the world. So it was really about being there. I didn't know anything about NASA. That was a complete surprise and essentially changed the course of my study there as well. And so, of course, I went to the meeting, by the way. (laughs) And um, the question was really that you could fly an experiment in microgravity with NASA if you were selected first by the university. So the way this works is that NASA says, look, I will choose some experiments from particular universities, and those universities put forward the students that will design the experiments. So you you had to be nominated first by the university and then hope that the Mm. university was selected. So it was a two-stage process. And so I thought, wow, this is nuts. Like I am a sophomore at Purdue and I am Australian with no American citizenship and I am surrounded by hundreds of super talented aerospace students. What right do I even have to apply for this? Like this is nuts. But of course I applied. <laughs> so tell us about that. Tell, like, tell us about the professor's door. The applications would you, let's say it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. I waited until around 4.59 and 30 seconds to slide my application in an A4 envelope under the professor's door and pretty much run away like I was not there. Essentially because it was such a big thing that it was a written application. It wasn't a technical one. And they were really probing you for why you wanted to be there, what you thought you could bring to the team, like how you were as a person. It it wasn't so much what technical skills do you have? Because by then it was clear, they expect everyone has the best technical skills. It's like a a professional sports team where the, the difference is, like they're all physically the best performers on the planet in their given positional sport and really it just comes down to that mental personal sort of thing that differentiates people at that point exactly so what did exactly. you bring to the team i found out later i was to bring communication and the ability to write technically but to connect mm. with an audience and be able to explain things in a way that kids could understand or adults or really really anyone but there was a lot of educational outreach and they were very interested both in someone who could write a good enough application to be selected by NASA in terms of scientific writing and then good enough at communicating with the rest of the community whether that's film like tv radio personal whatever type of communication they were looking for someone across the board could do all of that so essentially what I did was slide my application under and then and it's one of those movie moments and the one that I like to reflect on, it feels exactly like the one in the Legally Blonde film with Reese Witherspoon and they're choosing an intern and they put 
a white piece of A4 paper on a pin board far away with very small font, like a name on it, and everyone has to queue up, yeah. like struggling against each other to see if their name is the one on the pin board, right? And that's exactly how it was at Purdue. Wow. And so you've got this whole corridor. Everyone's like, the names are up, the names are up. And everyone's jostling to the front and people are walking away disappointed. Or But no one's actually saying the names. Amazingly, I'm like, no one actually says, they just see if it's their name. And when it's not their name, they walk away. But yeah. no one actually thinks to shout out, these are the names, right? It'd, so, <laughs> it'd be pretty easy to tell by the body language there. You'd think so, you'd think. So everyone's jostling, so I jostle to the front and my name is on the board. And I can't believe it. I didn't say a thing. I just was so shocked. I remember walking out of the building and probably doing nothing. Like I was so numb. I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe properly. I was not functional. And I'm like, my name, I think my name's on the board. Like it was second on the list. It means I'm definitely on the flight crew. Wow. I'm not just a support team member. Like I'm on flight crew. So as long as NASA selects the experiment that I'm going to design, which I didn't know what it was yet. Like we still had to come up with the experiment. I'm going to fly. And that was amazing. And so you fly, you end up flying with NASA doing these experiments. And what was the experiment about? The experiment was looking at the way fuel is essentially effectively delivered to a spacecraft in orbit so that there's no air bubbles in the fuel lines which is a problem that does actually happen. And it was happening with Lockheed Martin satellites. And so we were fortunate enough to get them to sponsor, meaning we had a little bit of budget for things that we could build with good hardware. But we were trying to look at different technologies for making that fuel delivery essentially air-free and and as efficient as it could be, irrespective of how that spacecraft was Mm -hmm. maneuvering. So you finish with NASA and then you head back to Australia. How did you end up on Hey Hey It's Saturday? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Daryl from Hey Hey had been asking a couple of times if I would go on the show. I think what happened was this was very unusual to have come from Sydney and to have ended up running this experiment. It did actually make news. It was in the paper and on the radio and on the TV. It got... People a little bit interested, I can only suppose, because a number of people reached out to me for different interviews and outreach things, and Daryl from Hey Hey was one of them. Has a lot of fun on his show, and they usually make a lot of fun and up and with their guests, and up until that point, most of my interviews had been, I would say, fairly more serious, you know, like ABC Radio mm. and the Sydney Morning Herald, and signif- ones where you're not going to be made fun of, really. Yeah. And then this Hey Hey Saturday came up and I thought, oh, I'm a bit nervous about that because Daryl's just going to mock me and I don't really want to be mocked because this was an amazing experience. Yeah, and I'm enjoying dear to your it, heart, right? right? <laughs> yeah. And so I said to him, no, I'm not coming on. I don't want to be mocked. And then I think I rejected him twice. And on the third time he said, look, we won't mock you. We're going to have fun. So come down and we'll have a good show. And so I did. And we did have a good show. It was great. We had, they had the whiteboard set up for me. They had all sorts of little fun jokes, but not mocking jokes. Yeah. And I had a great time and a good chat. And then they got axed. So, <laughs> so you were the death of... I was the death of Hey Hey. Yeah. If only you let them have their fun. <laughs> so you've been on Hey Hey, it's Saturday. It's fair to say you're on top of the world. <laughs> Life doesn't get much better than that. And what happened after Hey Hey, it's Saturday? That would have been the end of 2000. Oh, no, actually, that was the beginning of 2000. 
So I went on to finish my degrees in aerospace engineering and maths. And then I was offered a job with the Department of Defense as an aerodynamicist. It was very, very tough to get a job in Australia with anything related to aeronautics or aerospace. And I had to figure out would I accept this job or not. And it was September the 10th, 2001. And I remember promising I'd let them know, so I rang and I accepted that job. Pretty unsure if that was really what was meant to be taking me closer to this astronaut dream or not, but I knew it was good skills in test engineering Mm. and aerodynamics, and I was very, very lucky to have that job in Australia. We woke up the next morning and September 11 had happened in the US, which essentially crashed the aerospace industry as I knew it. And the main reason for that is because there was so much focus around defense and anything related to space became, it fell under the defense regulations essentially around security, which meant you had to be a citizen mostly to get any work. And of the US? In the US, yes. But it also meant moving around between jobs and programs was just, it was really difficult to do. Mm. The whole industry was actually paralyzed. And I remember that we had Boeing even writing to professors at our university saying, please tell the students to stop writing to us, asking for jobs, even in Australia. I think I was one of the only students, if not the only one, that got a job that year from my class, only because I accepted the day before by absolute chance. So that was another like career defining moment where I went on to actually learn some more great skills and start to practice my aerospace in industry where if I hadn't said yes to that, I I don't know what would have happened. It Mm. would have been, (laughs) it was, it was a lot of luck. So what was, what was the impact after that? So you're working, you are working with defense at this point. Yeah. And then what happens from there? I was also very lucky to be selected while I was with defense to go to the International Space University in France. And that was again, a total fluke I love everything French and I love everything space and one of my friends said to me hey Sam do you know that there's a space university in France and I thought oh my gosh that sounds like a dream that's a dream yeah (laughs) how did they know um and again very lucky to get a scholarship because I was considered as a third world nation from Australia. Australia yeah due to our total lack of presence in space engineering at the time. So I had a scholarship and so did someone from Nigeria back in 2003. (laughs) So I was really lucky I got to go and while I was working for defense and gaining my aerodynamics and test engineering skills, I was then still getting this exposure to these space specialists and a whole bunch of amazing people Mm. in this international interdisciplinary forum. And the other big thing that happened is the same year, 2003, was the Columbia tragedy, the explosion of the Columbia Space Shuttle. And that happened in the February of that year. And again, back to back with September 11, those two things just continued to stall the industry. And obviously, in the case of Columbia, that was very specifically stopping the space shuttle program Mm. which meant no more astronauts to space and so now i felt like there's so many blocks here this is not about how hard you work or how talented you are or 
anything, it's part of when you were born and some of the biggest circumstances that happen in history that you don't have control of. Yeah. And that will always happen in your life. And then you have to figure out, well, what's the new dynamic? How do I work with that? What what do I want to do? So what did that um, what did that do to your world? Like, what did that do to your thinking? Because that would have been pretty hard to stomach, right? To have those barriers put up, they're almost unscalable kind of walls around you. Yeah. To stop you from getting into that industry. So how? Did, what was your thought process around that? It was a really tough process, actually, because prior to that, I'd already been blocked from being a fighter pilot by the Australian Defence because I was female, which at the time they didn't allow even though we know that women are actually better at those kind of roles than men, we were not allowed to be pilots. And so I had felt triple blocked, essentially blocked, because I was female from being a pilot, blocked as a citizen of Australia rather than Mm. the US or Europe, blocked by these large world events that were obviously very tragic for a number of people Mm. as well, right? It was a big shift in our society. And so there was a whole new landscape I think I really struggled with that because some of it was just not sensible in the part where you know that I'm at Purdue a few years before and I'm doing amazingly. I was top of the class in the Mm -hmm. US. I knew that I was as good as the other students. The only things that felt like they were different was where I was born and the gender I was born. And it just felt really difficult to stomach. And I think for a long time I, I couldn't figure out how to get around that so I tried to go to Greece and find my Greek citizenship find my family there and see if I could get a passport to Europe I looked at moving to the US to try to become a citizen there but at the time the rule was you had to be born in the US so that didn't work I guess I tried a number of different angles to see if I could navigate my way around the wall like how high was the wall maybe I could scale it I've scaled all these other walls maybe this is another one I just need to be creative and think around it differently essentially what happened in the end is I think I stopped worrying about it somewhere along the way Mm. I thought more like this doesn't mean that I'm not going to end up in space one day or that I don't actually love the earth that we're on or I still love maths and science and research it seemed I might still get there another way and possibly it didn't matter as long as I was always doing things that I felt were important, Mm. that I believed in, that I loved and I respected the people around me and I made good choices that felt good at the time in the right direction, things would go the path they were meant to go and I Mm. would get there eventually or or not, right? (laughs) I think I eventually stopped worrying but it wasn't an easy thing. And especially because those challenges felt like just being stonewalled, right, when you'd worked so hard and tried so hard. Yeah. I was just sitting there quite amazed, imagining all those different obstacles that are being put up in your way. You still have this frame of mind and approach to these things, like you're trying so many different avenues to make it, to make it work, but then at the same time you're kind of accepting, like, you're going to stick to your own values and and trusting that things will just work out. Yeah, as long as you're listening to that inner compass, yeah. though, right? You have to have some direction to it. You need to be flexible, but it'd be easy to go completely off path as well. Yeah. And so I think it's really important that 
you're in tune with that inner voice and that you're making decisions that feel like you're aligned with that, even though it's quite different to where you thought it would be and maybe it maybe it hurts or it doesn't feel good because there's these blocks and you felt like you deserved to be somewhere else. Um, yeah, it's still important that you navigate via that internal voice. What were some of those um, principles and values, I guess, what was, like, if you talk about that in a compass, what does that in, in a compass look like? So for me, it's definitely something that's evolved to become more aware of. Like at the beginning, it was really very much just an obvious gut feeling. I very much work off my gut feeling. I know that I should and have done written giant lists of comparison around things that are right or wrong or good or bad around certain decisions and paths. But for me, initially, always, it was just... A genuine gut feeling I knew what felt right and what didn't and as I said you like had to be careful with that because if your gut isn't in tune then, yeah. <laughs> then it feels right and it's not it's not right yep. anyway but initially it felt more like that as time went on I think I could define it better and part of that is feeling that the things that I do are making the world a, a better place in the in the best way that I can do it However that looks, there's many ways that that can be expressed, but the underpinning feeling is that the world is better because I am working on the project I'm working on or acting the way I'm acting. And that's a, like, that's a fundamental motivator for me is that I'm working often on something that is bigger than myself that feels that it's important for the earth, for the human human race, for who we are as people or our communities. And if it touches any of those things, whether that's education and teaching engineers without borders mm. or whether that's working on a sustainable city design, it, it doesn't matter how it's expressed. It's just that feeling that I'm part of something that's important to humanity like who we are in terms of evolving our human race in the best possible version of ourselves so after after september 11 and after the columbia disaster started shutting doors for the u.s how did your path start to unfold i was still very keen in the space industry and i had to figure out is there ways to keep working in the space industry in Australia, even though we had very limited options? And I was lucky I had my job in aerodynamics, in defense, and I had figured out from that job that I really enjoyed test engineering and aerodynamics and hypersonic flow, which is very, very high speed flow that is up to say 25 times the speed of sound, let's say would be a typical hypersonic speed that the space shuttle would re-enter wow. Earth um, with when it comes back from a mission. So these kinds of fields were very interesting to me because it's where chemistry starts to come involved. There's, the air is so hot. It's called aerothermodynamics. There's a whole range of fluids and thermodynamics that really interested me. And that led me to the University of Queensland where they had become the first team in the world to demonstrate supersonic combustion in an air-breathing engine for the first time. 
And so that's basically combustion happening faster than the speed of sound. And this was intended to be used in hypersonic vehicles. Mm. And I thought, look, I might have to go somewhere else in the world to engage in this project. But it turned out that the team that was the world leader was actually in Brisbane. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. Right on your with, doorstep. <laughs> with all the shutdown everywhere else in the globe, there's actually some amazing research and engineering happening why, in why, Brisbane. Why Brisbane of all places? Just an amazing team and very, very few resources lots of innovation because of that scarcity of recent yeah. resource that brings on that whole creative mindset and shout just, out to new zealand yeah <laughs> 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 and and so yeah that's where i went and i began doing research in the scrambled engines and spent a few years up there with a fantastic team and then tell me about germany Germany. So I was finishing up with the Brisbane team. A lot of that work had started to become defense related, right. which was not what I was interested in. And I really wanted to be thinking about the peaceful uses of outer space and of the technology we yeah. used. I wasn't interested in hypersonic missiles, which is where some of the research was starting to go. Mm. And I was really fortunate that there was a, a contact in Germany had put my name forward for a test engineering role similar to my first job in Europe in Germany and this was on the surface my ticket potentially to Europe and the European mm. Space Agency so even with NASA shut down and the shuttle program shut down there's still activity happening in Europe and Europe was a long way behind the US anyway so they were doing their best to catch up yeah and so on the surface it seemed like I could take this job in air, it was essentially aircraft engineering I would have been looking at Airbus Airbus 330s 380s right and I went over to Germany yeah. and met the team and they were very very keen for me to have this job and look I did not know why I had previously applied over the 10 years prior thousands of times literally online for exactly these kinds of jobs all over Europe wow with companies everywhere and you never hear back and this is just to get your keep your foot in the door with the space thing right this is just to keep my foot in the door in in aerospace right like this is the stuff it I has love. space in the title it's space related <laughs> yeah, remember exactly it's still maths and physics and yeah. research and it's really really fascinating stuff to me so there was no logical reason to me why this would be any different or why they wanted me but it was just lucky that it was that personal recommendation and that was the, that was really the difference is that a previous uh, an Aussie was there from in that role previously and it seemed like that went really really well mm. in the German team and they that person was leaving coming back to Australia and they wanted a replacement my name was put forward and something just wasn't right when I got there and I didn't know why it was one of those moments career defining personal defining moments when you're there and on paper literally everything looks perfect and this is that foot in the door you've been waiting for yeah. and working so hard for and all these other doors have shut and I've thought wow well I've continued on I've been true to myself I've done what I'm interested in I've kept developing and learning skills I've worked with great people and hey, this is how it's presented itself to me a few mm. years down the track. It was 2007. I can't explain why. Something just 
sank inside of me. Literally this feeling when I walked in and I saw the facility and I knew where I'd be and how the job would go. And I, I can't explain why. And I tried so hard to deny that because mm. it was meant to be everything that was right. I remember getting on the plane, coming back to Australia thinking, like, this has to be wrong, <laughs> right? Surely this is the right job and I'm just afraid or I'm too scared that I'm not good enough or I'd, I'd have to learn German and I don't know German yet. Like, there could have been any number of reasons, but I couldn't explain it. And I spent about a month essentially stalling them and they were asking me over wow. and over, like, when are you coming? When are you starting? We really, really want you. And again, I, I didn't know why because I hadn't demonstrated anything directly to these people. It was just word of mouth. And I didn't know what to do because... Like I knew I was meant to be somewhere else, but I didn't know what it was. And so in the end, I made one of the hardest decisions. And I said, sorry, no, I'm not coming. Uh, the job's not for me. Wow. And That's a tough call. Yeah, it was and massive. Have you even today, have you even worked out what it was or like what, what it might have been? No, I just know that. Like I said, I go on my gut, so I hope it was in tune. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Well, you wouldn't be on this podcast otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I might be speaking German at the beer festival about now. Yeah. But, but yeah, something, something didn't feel right. What happened now, I came back and actually contacted a company in Sydney that was doing what looked like to me interesting work in the field of sustainability even though I had no skills in sustainability at that time, I think I was interested in what they did. And I essentially said, look, my background's in aerothermodynamics, meaning anything with fluid and heat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that sounds to me like the way buildings and cities and societies run with or, water and energy and building operations and or, transport. Or dinner gets cooked. <laughs> oh, or dinner. <laughs> um, so I think that's a fit, right? It sounds right. like a perfect fit to me. We just rewrite your CV that way. Yeah. And, and somehow they said yes. So I went from being in supersonic combustion engines to turning down what looked like this dream job in Germany to actually taking my first job in sustainability without any knowledge of what it really was in Sydney of all places. Mm. And I moved back. So you're working, you're working with this consulting company in sustainability. Yeah. What were some of the projects you were working on? We had so many different projects, and that's what I actually loved about it. It was, when I joined, it was a small company called Bassett, and it mm. later became consumed by Acom, which is a huge, the world's biggest engineering design firm. So it attracted a lot of very interesting projects. And from my first day, unusual things came across my desk every week and you just had to solve the problems fast and I remember one day I came back from lunch and I was pretty new still and there was a note on my desk from the director of the region essentially saying there's a meeting at one o'clock with the Australian Antarctic Division and it was something to do with cold climate engineering and figuring out how to condition their telescope below where the staff would be but the fact the telescope would actually be open and so any heated air couldn't form any aberrations yeah when it met the really cold air because it had to be optically perfect yeah like a, a problem that sounded 
kind of ridiculous or very hard. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what any of that meant. And I had three minutes so until this meeting. And what and did I, you do? I jumped on Google, of course, like every good engineer. <laughs> and, and Googled cold climate, Antarctica, physics, telescopes, whatever words I could think of. And went to that meeting and we got the project. And I then went on to work on this really interesting telescope problem with a bunch of cool Antarctic physicists and learn about cold climate engineering and all sorts of interesting things that led me deeper into thinking around how we actually work in a in an environment that's actually more harsh and more difficult like right. Antarctica where it is very cold and there isn't an abundance of food and there's back to that pioneering mindset which actually felt to me very much like a space outpost yeah so it was yeah. linked in all these ways I started to recognize these beautiful synergies between how we do live on earth or sometimes don't live on earth and how we intend or project that we will mm. live on Mars or other space outposts so that's cool that is cool what is it about your problem solving process that special um 80 percent solution <laughs> i definitely don't go for the details um mostly perspective i think i look at it very objectively very high level anything like literally that coaster perspective and i tend i've learned that i tend to think about some of those problems differently i suspect that's just how i'm built part of that is how i must operate and that perspective can be really helpful in solving a problem, but also in helping people figure out what question they're really asking. I found often I was being asked questions that weren't really the true question or you know, the real intent of what someone wanted. So I had recognized an ability in myself to actually say, look, maybe you meant this. Is this a better way to ask this question? to get the outcome you're looking for mm. and then help them solve the problem. Where did that come from? I think that's intrinsic to me. Like right. I like to look at why we're really doing something. What's the like, motivation? Yeah, the actual real motivation to it and not just like, hey, you know, can I have a toaster to cook yeah. my toast? It's like, what's the, the point? Like the point is I want warm bread. Yeah. And so maybe we can do that different ways. Exactly. That's well, that's how I've always thought. And I think that was just consolidated in terms of my time as a consultant because you don't ever get a lot of time and mm. you have to be very creative. So I think perspective, creativity, and the ability to really work with the human and figure out what they're really needing mm. were my key areas. Versus what they say because what people say they need and what they actually need can be two different things, right? Exactly, yeah. Yep. No, that one. So how did you get into solar from there? I suppose heat again. <laughs> the sun. <laughs> the sun. Sun shining. Um, uh, it was an interesting move, that one, but I'd learnt from consulting that I could solve problems very quickly and at least at a high level understand the situation through my maths and physics and when a business is willing to take a risk on me that that was probably the right business for me mm -hmm. and it may have looked on the surface like there was no match between aerothermodynamics in 
rocket engines and air thermodynamics in building physics. Mm. But the person who was prepared to say, actually, I think there's a definite link. I think this person will belong in our team really helped me understand that that in fact, yeah, I wouldn't be happy in a business that, that wouldn't take that risk on me. So with all that in mind, I had started working on some small solar systems as a consultant. And then also in Nicaragua, I had been installing individual solar uh, panels at in, like individual level at houses. And I thought to myself, look, I really wanted to get into renewable energy. I felt like there was a whole level of an industry that needed to be built specifically in Australia. And this was something that could be done here. It didn't matter what my citizenship was. Mm. At all. Like we really had something important to do in this country that we hadn't done yet. And that was to really work towards 100% renewable energy. That's mm. where we need to be. But there was no industry for it. And I knew I didn't want to do things at small scale. That led me to utility scale power stations and how do I get involved in that and I'd heard that a company called First Solar was a US company based in Arizona on the grapevine would most likely be coming to Australia I went to their American office and I had applied again online not expecting to ever hear from them strangely enough one day my phone rings and it's this recruiter from First Solar in Phoenix and he starts asking me all the questions on the job application, which were many, many attributes. 30 years experience in the power industry. Are you an electrical engineer? 10 years experience specifically in solar. Are you a project manager? Like there's a number of things, all of to which I said no. Actually, none of those. <laughs> I did have an engineering degree at least. He kind of got about two thirds of the way down the list. And then he said, look, I'm sorry, but I somehow, I must've rung the wrong person. Like you're really don't seem to be qualified for this job. And again, it was one of those movie moments where you can visually see your life changing in the next two seconds forever as someone on the other side of the world was hanging up the phone in slow motion. I can see it. <laughs> and I shouted down the phone, stop, like just anything to give me a second, like, don't hang up. And then he didn't. Thankfully, I said, look, we need to build an industry here. I know I don't have any of those skills, but I don't know that anyone does because we haven't done this here yet. This isn't the US or Europe where we're well behind, right? I said, look, maybe I can be like the understudy. So when you find this perfect person that hits all these requirements, I could train under them and then I can become that person and then we'll build the industry because we need more of us. It's going to take more than one. He says to me, look, just write me a paragraph for whatever it is you're proposing. Like, I don't know what it is, but just write me a paragraph and email it to me and I'll see if someone will read it. What was on that paragraph? <laughs> I don't remember, remember exactly, but something like what I just said, right? Wow. Basically, I'll be the trainee. I'll be the intern. Just let me shadow someone special and I'll learn. I'm a quick learner. I'll figure it out. I'll solve problems. That's awesome. Something to that effect. Just give me a chance. <laughs> a day later, I get a phone call from someone in the US who starts interviewing me for a, a position that sounded very much like the one I'd applied for. And I just started answering questions and I did nine interviews in the next couple of days across the US. Wow. And all this time, I didn't know what was going on. I thought, I was being interviewed to be this intern. I had no idea. 
then, and then it got to the point where this recruiter rings me and he's like, look, I don't know what you're doing, but you should keep doing it. <laughs> he's like, I really don't know. And he says, look, I think they're going to offer you the job. And I didn't even <laughs> want to ask, like, which job? Is this the job or, like, the part where I shadow someone for several years' job? So your recruiter's, <laughs> your recruiter is scratching his head as well, kind of going, I don't know how this is happening but it's happening and he's got no idea he says to me like sam i had to pull your cv out of the bin i you just were not qualified right anyway and so it turns out that they offered me the actual job not the internship job which i didn't find out till i got the contract because i was not prepared to ask anyone what job i was actually being offered it turned out that i did later meet the recruiter i went but I went to the US first on my first day of the job and I did meet Rick, the recruiter. He told me that, in fact, now they use me as a training exercise. I was his very first hire ever, by the way, in Australia. He was so proud, I was wow. up on the wall. He has like a list of all his hires. And he said that I'm used as an example for people that actually don't tick any of the boxes, like none of them, yeah. <laughs> but are somehow still actually valuable to the company and it's not obvious why because they don't seem to have the attributes that are being asked for Mm. like obviously they went on yeah apparently to use me as an hr exercise but i'm very thankful that that company took a big risk on me and then i was fortunate enough to be able to work with those engineers that did know more than me and the managers and the project developers very closely while they were in the US and I was in Australia. And we were able to start building the solar industry here because wow. of that. And it wouldn't have happened if they didn't take that chance on me. So I was very lucky and very grateful, but also I guess put myself in that position as well. That's so cool. It's pretty that crazy. Is, that is cool. You were talking about Spaceship Earth a little bit before, and that's tied into the stuff you've done with ISU, is that correct? As I was working more and more in things like green buildings and sustainable cities and aspects like that, I obviously had less and less technical aerospace skills to offer that were very current, but more and more knowledge to offer in these other areas that a lot of people didn't have. So I started making up my own material in these areas, and that was a forum for me to Mm -hmm. explore it and see how it went. And I noticed over time I was kind of building towards these two loves of space and earth without really realizing it until in about 20 think what 2017 was the first time I actually called it spaceship earth and part of that is inspired by a wonderful quote by Buckminster Fuller which is I've often heard people say I wonder what it would feel like to be on board a spaceship and the answer is very simple that's all we have ever experienced we are all astronauts on a little spaceship called earth I think that's just a wonderful image around what we actually have here on this beautiful planet and how it combines the ideas that we can be bold and brave on planet Earth and use our resources as wisely and innovatively as we would have to if we went to Mars. The idea that we're thinking about Earth the same way as we would think about any other planetary mission and you know, the simple idea that we need the same ingredients to survive no matter where we are and the systems that we need, air, food, water, shelter, will have to be on Earth or on Mars or any other planet. And so how do we how do we look at that? How do we kind of say, well, 
going to Mars is the same as being on Earth and regenerating Earth mm. and producing systems that make Earth better all of the time, like renew, restore, regenerate. It's completely different to the idea of sustainability. Mm. We're not talking about, hey, I'm neutral or I'm 50% less emissions or 100% less emissions. We're talking about positives. How do I give back? How do I renew the soil or the community? And it's a challenge, but these are the kind of topics that I like to to challenge students with, you know, and most of them will find that they think it's much easier to go to Mars and mm. build a colony there than it is when I ask them to do the same thing on Earth, mm. where our mind and our thinking is already set. We've got a lot of communities that are already built, there's systems in place, and it's much, much harder to think about how can I regenerate the community that I live in or a new one mm. in a place on Earth where it's greenfields. It should be easier on Earth. We can breathe air, it's warm, we can survive here. <laughs> it's a very hospitable planet. You can go to Bunnings planet. if you need something, <laughs> You correct. can go to Bunnings if you forget yeah. the hammer, <laughs> yeah. you know. But you'd be amazed at how challenged um, participants are when they're asked to do the same task on Earth. Wow. And I find it a very helpful, stimulating discussion point. And it's different every year depending on who you have. But the premise is how do we create bioregenerative systems here for Earth that are exactly what we'd need if we traveled anywhere in the world, sorry, anywhere in the universe. And the point of it being that if we can do it on Earth, to the extent that we need to do it, Mm. completely closed loop, we're being efficient, we've got that pioneering mindset, if we can do that here, then we can truly go to any planet in the universe. And I add to that that it goes a step further with getting people to think that the humans are an organism functioning with the planet Earth itself. It's not us using the Earth in certain ways or recycling certain nutrients. We're thinking from the outset, like we're a living, breathing organism. Mm. We're evolving and transforming together in the perfect version the human and the natural world become blurred like the lines between that you don't just see a jungle and then a big concrete city you start to see the edges all blur we're thinking as an entire organism and we're co-evolving and that is a really important part of thinking in this regenerative way and ultimately Therefore, how do we give back to the system? How do we make it better? How do we improve it because we're here and work with nature and, and, and our natural world and the systems that actually underpin, you know, the planetary ecosystems that underpin our entire existence? We need to work with those in a way that they're part of us. I'm going to change tact here a little bit. What about life on Mars? Should we? <laughs> <laughs> sure, just a little bit. Yeah. So what about Mars? Should we go to Mars? I think that humanity will go anywhere in the universe as long as it's for the right reasons. And I believe that that's possible. I believe we go to Mars because we as humans choose to become a multi-planetary species because we have that pioneering spirit, the exploration those adventurous reasons to go to space. Um, Maybe there will be a point at which we have 
giant population that has to go somewhere else, that's definitely an option. But I don't believe we go to Mars for essentially not treating Earth the way we should be treating Earth. We go because we are humans that love to explore, that are inspired by new adventures, that seek to expand our human connection deeper into the universe for many other reasons that are positive, not because we've destroyed our planet, Mm. our home planet. And the reason I say that that's the same thing, to stay on Earth as it is to go to Mars, is because my vision of Earth, to stay here, we have to be different. We have to treat Earth as though it's this spaceship, the spaceship Earth idea, that has bioregenerative life support systems that regenerate, <laughs> not not get used and destroyed. Essentially that we we need the same things to survive anywhere in the universe. You know, air, water, food, shelter. Whether we're on Mars or Earth, it doesn't matter. And so the systems that we build, they need to be effective and reusable irrespective of the planet that we choose to be on. So I believe that for us to actually survive on Earth, to continue with the population growth we have and the diminishing resources, we need to be more innovative Hmm. than if we went to Mars. It's so much harder. We're not starting from a clean slate. On the flip side, it's easier because it's so much more hospitable on Earth than it is on Mars, you know? But even then, you think that we've barely populated planet Earth. We're only on about 10% of the planet. So many areas are completely inhospitable to us here already, whether that's the high mountain ranges or deep oceans or the deserts. There's areas here we've never colonized on planet Earth. And to think that that would be easier to colonize them on Mars is, I think, not realistic. It's much easier to do this here on Earth and we need to and we should we we have to we have the responsibility to so i believe going to mars is the same thing as staying on earth and and that we need to do both and we we will do both but i do believe and hope that it will be for the right reasons you mentioned about um you know mountains deserts and oceans and potentially colonizing those environments but then I can't help but thinking what about the demand on resources and things like that like if you know if we if we have to live in those places like if the population of earth keeps growing then surely that's going to put a huge um, strain on our resources what are your thoughts on that we're putting a strain on our resources now and mm. we will be our population is growing so wherever we are on the planet the mere fact that our population is increasing and the resources are depleting is putting a massive strain on the planet so irrespective of whether it's an area that we've colonized before or not we're after a massive step change shift to how we live on earth and how we think about it and and how we approach it with the best and brightest minds with enthusiasm with ambition when you think about telling someone you're going to the moon like in the 1960s moon landing Mm. like the amount of inspiration and the entire generations of kids that grew up to want to become astronauts and space engineers 
and mathematicians because of that space program. It was so inspiring, right? Yeah. So I feel that that is the level of passion that we need to inspire for these changes on Earth. It's not an easy thing. It's very, very hard. There's so much social programming. There's so much existing on this planet that we would have to change or gradually evolve. And we can't do that without feeling genuinely inspired, passionate, having strong action plans that are practical and actionable and that really engage everyone in Mm. a way that feels as moving as going to the moon or to Mars and we can inspire a whole generation. It feels easier. I always think about design projects and things like that and it always feels a lot easier and a hell of a lot more sexy to start a brand new project or a brand new from a clean slate, even if it means starting from scratch again, than dealing with the mess you've made. Exactly. And then picking that apart and trying to work with that, which I think is, is a challenge in itself. It's so true. How, so do you true. Encourage, how do you get people excited, or maybe excited is the wrong word, but to take on the task of actually cleaning up the mess we've made? Like how do we turn that into that pioneering mindset of going to a different planet or a different frontier but that frontier is actually here on earth like that's exactly the vision it is really tough but the few a few things that come to mind that are standouts when we talk about going to mars elon musk said it's a little cold on mars but we can warm it up right that language is amazing like mars is like minus 100 and 70 degrees. Yeah. It's a little cold. And yet, when it comes to Earth, we've got the significantly less challenge. But the language we use to talk about it is so much more negative. Earth needs better marketing, people. Earth needs, <laughs> mu- Earth needs much better marketing. <laughs> and some new logos and a hey. couple of Earth rocket ships. But it's entirely true, right? Like, yeah. we say things like energy poverty or water scarcity we use this negative language because these are that they're tough things to solve but we certainly don't say oh hey there's a small water deficit but don't worry we'll sort it out you know there's a massive shift to be made in the approach we take from language training essentially so it's like the it's like the nlp stuff i've been um doing a bit of work with lately and it's all about the language that you use um, and how much subtlety there is in the way that we... The example this guy was talking about was when a, um, when a pilot says, we're coming to make our final approach, or we're making our final approach, yeah. or things like the alarm clock. Alarm's not a good thing. Like, alarm's never a good thing. Alarm is a, a negative thing. You the don't opportunity wanna, clock, you don't right? Wanna, you don't want to be alarmed. You want to be woken up or gently brought into the world back into consciousness but how these how the way we sell things and market things and talk about things is highly important to how they're adopted and accepted you know exactly yeah and when we talk about nasa is going to mars by 2030 elon musk is going there by 2035 or whatever the years are they change they give a really clear goal that sounds massive and then a number of steps to achieve that, whether it's we have this launch to the moon and then we go partway to Mars, then we go with a robot, then we go with a human and then we go with a colony. However it is, there's clear stages. But it feels like a really 
a big plan, like something that is so bold that it catches your attention. You think, wow, like is that mm. is that possible? But then they break it down into the steps that feel actionable and practical and mm. real. And you think, I can sign up to those steps. Yeah, we can do that. Mm. But when it comes to Earth, we we don't have that bold plan yet. We have a number of different countries doing things or different governments at different levels doing things that are all positive and good steps and standout buildings of high performance with energy and water and mm. a number of wonderful things. But like across the board to say our city is going to be like this, say, in 2035 with these actionable steps in it that bring people along, that mm. make you feel like you're engaged and you're part of the community. That's a, it's a really big part of it as well, combined with that language. And I think, unfortunately, so far in Australia, we do ha have had a lot of sort of government plans come out. They haven't really been held to account and they don't bring people necessarily on the journey as a whole, as a whole community. I'm going to ask a couple more questions and as we wrap up. Is there such thing as a wrong turn? <laughs> I believe yes. Depends how many lives you think you have. Right. <laughs> I think if you think you've just got one life, you could probably take enough wrong turns in one life that you might end up very far away from where, from a good place. And I know that every turn you make, you're going to learn something from it and you're going to grow and there will be an experience from it. And as people say, no experience is a bad experience. But I do believe that you could, you could accidentally or for any reason, whether it's how you started in life or you've had bad hits or something, you could take enough wrong turns that in one life you might end up very far away from a positive place and maybe you make it up in the second life but anyway i think that i don't necessarily think of things as a wrong turn but theoretically possible yeah to to take a, enough wrong turns that you might not be able to come back within this life you might need a second or a third life <laughs> what's the most surprising thing about the way your life's panned out that's a really tough question. <laughs> I think actually one thing that I found, this is a work thing. Well, it's not really work. I found surprising is related to Spaceship Earth that we were just talking about, is that how long it would take me to see that I didn't need to choose between space and Earth. Because my whole life I've been so interested in the planet Earth and oceanography and the ocean and all of the amazing things we have here on this beautiful planet and so fascinated by space at a level I couldn't understand why I was thinking that way since ever I remember that it always felt like a decision between the two for me mm. at all times and it's only been by following this path where I have gone along in all these different directions following what felt right I literally got to Space University last year or the year before when I was presenting Spaceship Earth for the first time and I and it actually felt like this is why I'm here it's literally for space and for Earth they're the same thing mm. it's about humanity and how we live as a society no matter which planet we're on and where we are in the universe doesn't matter and that 
felt so surprising, but then so absolutely obvious mm. that I couldn't believe I ever thought that they were separate. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> Last question. Um, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 12, 14 year old self? Oh man, another tough question. <laughs> Setting out on this journey of life. Um, that you must just keep following what feels right. Like believe in that. It doesn't matter what what someone else says, even though there's a lot of good mentors and people that are very constructive in your life. You know in your heart of hearts what the right things are. Hmm. So preserve that. Like don't let that be eroded. Like hold on to that. Believe in that. And move through life with that as your as your compass because you'll end up where you need to be where you want to be and you'll be your most fulfilled self and that that leads to true happiness that's a beautiful thing samantha thank you very much thank you it's been very very exciting and a lot of fun to be on the show yeah three um three takes three takes into it and this one's going in the can um yeah thank you so much again for coming and sharing your story uh there's so many other like it was really difficult to just sit here and listen to one thing and try and stay on some track because there's so many other questions i had about different facets and interesting things we could have been here for a lot longer (laughs) but that can be saved for another time so thank you again and goodbye thank you